0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C.
1: And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, also recording in Washington, D.C.
0: Hey, Katie, good to be back with you. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: It's been good. I think uh, we owe our listeners an episode on Central Asia based on the last podcast promises. And I think we'll give them just that. And I think this is particularly good timing given that uh, it hasn't been too long since you got back from the region, which I believe was your first time back in Central Asia since the pandemic. Is that right?
1: Yes, I was last in uh, Uzbekistan in late 2019, and this time I was able to get to Bishkek for uh, a little over a
0: week. Fantastic. Yeah, we've uh, we've covered, of course, developments in Central Asia intermittently on this podcast, and it's, of course, been great to have you uh, as co-host, given your expertise on the region. I think there's a few things we can uh, kind of touch base on today. Uh, firstly, I think beginning with the latest news that the United States has sanctioned several uh, firms uh, in Kyrgyzstan for uh, conducting prohibited business with Russia, which I think takes us back to the broader themes concerning Central Asia's continuing economic ties and reliance in many ways on the Russian economy uh, and how uh, countries in this part of the world have been navigating the challenges that have come uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, So for our listeners, Katie, maybe you can kick us off by just telling us a little bit about the backstory here with the sanctions and what we should be taking away. Uh, regarding the uh, significance more broadly uh, of these new U.S. sanctions?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the issue of sanctions invasion has been uh, a big topic in Central Asia since the war in Ukraine started. Uh, there are few regions that have economies that are intertwined with Russia's as Central Asia uh, or or people who understand how the Russian businesses work and Russians understand how business works in Central Asia. So it's pretty easy run around sanctions. Uh, earlier this summer, uh, RFERL reported, uh, had an investigative report on a group of companies that were uh, exporting sanctioned dual-use technology to Russia. Essentially, a firm would be established in Bishkek or Almaty and would work with a Russian importer based in a major defense industry hub to uh, import mostly electronic equipment, so micro microchips, telecommunications equipment, other electronics, Uh, aspects that were imported into Russia, um, often uh, directly from a Western country, but the money would go through Bishkek and the goods would go to Russia. Uh, And these are the kinds of things that the Ukrainian military recovers from Russian missiles and tanks uh, on the battlefields in Ukraine. Now, what happened this week was that earlier in the week, the Washington Post reported that additional sanctions targeting Kyrgyz companies were probably coming. And then on July 20th, sanctions were announced. Uh, a new batch of sanctions were announced by the Treasury Department. And six of the Kyrgyz companies that were sanctioned uh, earlier this week or yesterday, uh, as we're recording, they were companies that were directly named in the RFER investigation. Uh, what was interesting to me was that between the Washington Post story, which came out on July 18th, and the new sanctions on July twentieth, Kyrgyz authorities came out with pretty direct comments acknowledging that private Kyrgyz companies might be involved in this business, uh, and sort of pledging to investigate and put a stop to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the sanctions were announced. So I thought that was an interesting, like preemption of what they knew was coming, which is also different. Often the sort of first step is denial, 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 the, the Kyrgyz authorities actually went the other direction, which I thought was was curious. Uh, but the, the sort of short end of this is that there are companies in Central Asia that saw business opportunity uh, skirting sanctions, Uh, and the the question is now is how hard is the US and the EU going to push on these countries uh, to shut down these businesses, which are often not They're not state businesses necessarily. They're private companies. What are these governments going to do to actually put a stop to that trade? Do they want to put a stop to that trade? There's a lot of questions here.
0: Right. So, I mean, the the broader issue here is that these companies think that they can effectively get away with this uh, in in the current environment, and they don't see uh, any reason for really complying with U.S. sanctions until the U.S. begins enforcement in this way. Is that broadly right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, these are these are companies and businesses, um, some of which were founded like directly after the invasion. These are people who saw a business opportunity. I don't know that they're thinking about the larger geopolitical implications. It's more of I can make a bunch of money uh, selling, being the middleman between a, a Western semiconductor company and uh, a Russian business. And maybe that semiconductor company doesn't totally understand where those goods are going. So, I I mean, there is obviously this geopolitical angle to it, but I think it's just Mm -hmm. uh, businesses that see an opportunity uh, and and seized upon it. And when you when we look at I don't have the exact numbers at the top of my head, uh, but when you look at the trade data from in Central Asia in the last year, it's really interesting. Something like the the num the volume of refrigerators and refrigerator parts that were imported into Russia from Kazakhstan just like exploded. Uh I don't think they're buying that many more refrigerators. I think there's some parts harvesting, uh, but also nobody could buy a refrigerator directly from the West. So that kind of thing also has been happening.
0: Right, right. And so, you know, I-, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your your trip. Of course, you know, recognizing that Central Asia is a big region with various kind of perspectives on on a range of issues, and you got a small slice of that going to Bishkek. But were you sort of uh, struck by any changes or any kind of particular themes that came up in your conversations about how the region's sort of viewing more generally, uh, you know, Asia in the post-COVID era, Central Asia, uh, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine? What were your general impressions?
1: Uh, yeah, so this was, this was the first time I was in Kyrgyzstan since 2016, which is two governments and one revolution ago. Uh, and so it was it, a number of people have asked me, you know, what was what was different. The city itself feels a lot the same uh, for those who have never been to Bishkek. Bishkek is a, a fun little city in the way that Washington is short. Bishkek is kind of short, but it also is very bustling. There's a lot going on. Uh, and And that has remained true, I think one of the maybe differences that I I noted and the reason that I was there was to speak at a conference on uh, China and Central Asia. There's a lot more discussion of China than I think there was six years ago. Uh, And so that is an interesting angle. And there's a lot of discussion about China, Russia, the West, who's paying attention to Central Asia and who Central Asia can rely on uh, for what. Uh, And so those are sort of the, the major changes i would say is there's more discussion about china chinese influence uh i I don't know if i would say there's more evidence of it there were chinese companies uh there when i was uh there back in 2016 building roads and that kind of thing but i think there's a lot more discussion uh, about china
0: And uh you know on on China more broadly um, what are I mean what do you think people get wrong about Central Asia and China it's probably maybe the right way to ask that because I know previously on the podcast we've talked a bit about how sometimes Americans especially kind of overinterpret the geopolitical dynamics that are at play in Central mm-hmm. Asia when it comes to China what's your um, what's your impression on that
1: yeah that that's definitely becoming my hobby horse um, yeah. because I will here in Washington I will often, when someone in, in a sort of more general uh geopolitical or national security focused group will find out I, I do central asia stuff they'll ask me about whether russia and china are gonna get into it in central asia and i think that that is like at least 85 percent wishful thinking on the part of the the usually the american that says it uh because when you look at how china and russia both act in Central Asia and act around each other in Central Asia, we don't see a antagonistic competition uh, yet. I mean, many things remain possible in the grand uh, universe of options, but they really work in tandem. I think there's a lot of similarities with how Russia and China approach the world. uh, And those similarities also line up with the largely autocratic governments of Central Asia, where there's maybe. Tension and differences is in the publics, which don't have as much control about what their governments do or how their governments behave. But when you talk to Central Asians, there's a lot of Central Asians who are not happy about Russia. Uh, they still might have a cousin who's gone to Russia to work because uh, that's sort of an economic necessity. But there's a lot of Central Asians who are who are, you know, having. Uh, well, one of the the iterations of this is there's been a, a much larger uh, discussion about decolonialism and sort of decolonizing how central Asians think about the Soviet period and about their own histories within that larger arc. And you have those conversations now, not just in academic circles, but people will talk about it in bars um, yeah. and, at parties. So it's sort of that that is in the air. Interesting. Um, and and yeah. And when it when it comes to the China dynamic, there is pretty pretty good data and research at this point on on the fact that while while central asian citizens sort of recognize the economic uh benefits of doing business with with china and the the sort of necessities in the geopolitics of doing business with china there's not a lot of um interest in chinese culture or in in importing outside governments this is there isn't a lot of interest in importing sort of chinese style government for example so the they I, when I look at the region, the largest sort of friction point I see between Russia, China, and the Central Asian uh, landmass is is that tension between what Central Asian governments want to do and then what Central Asian people want to do, and I think that's where the the most sort of potential for crisis really crops up. And and we have seen this already sort of play out in places like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan that have had either large protests or revolutions in the Kyrgyz um, status. Those things aren't necessarily about Russia or China, but I think that that feeds into some of the domestic difficulties uh, within the region and will continue to do so.
0: Yeah. So uh, Katie, the last question I wanted to ask you, uh, and this kind of dovetails nicely with your comments about, I guess, internal instability, revolutions and uprisings is, uh, you know, you were in Bishkek shortly after the Wagner uprising in Russia, which, of course, was remarkable, attracted a lot of attention around the world. I'm wondering uh, if in any of your conversations, you know, you, you kind of got an idea of how Central Asian states were kind of viewing this in Russia. Uh, i know there were some conversations initially about you know whether the csto would get involved given the csto's involvement in kazakhstan last year uh, I'm, I'm curious uh how um how the region more broadly uh viewed the wagner uprising and 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 i guess how central asians are more broadly assessing uh putin's position within russia
1: yeah that i was i i, I landed in bishkek Bech, like the 27th of june so only a couple days after so the first thing everybody had to say was like what the heck was that uh what what is going on what was this thing um but i think when you look at who putin called after the 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 uprising or the rebellion or whatever we're going to call it in in the history books uh he called uh, the uzbek president i believe and he also spoke to the kazakh president and and sort of both of those readouts were really really short and very brief um, and sort of recognized this as an internal matter in russia and the reason that language really matters is because the csto does not get involved in the internal matters of its member states that is a like uh, tagline it has used every time that there has been some kind of issue in central asia that it doesn't want to get involved in they say that's an internal matter it's not really you know you can't really invoke i think it's article five in the CSTO. 2 you can't really invoke that because this is for external threats um where that was different is in kazakhstan in january 2022 uh Tokayev very publicly said that these were this is a a you know, foreign force at one point he claimed 20,000 bandits and terrorists had invaded the country uh and and the csto used that language as a, a response to a terrorist incident and that had foreign involvement. None of that was actually true, but that was the, the the language that was used. And so the fact that when talking about this incident in Russia, that it was referred to by both of these governments, Uzbekistan is not in the CSTO, but Kazakhstan is uh, as an internal issue uh, and sort of they, were, they, they stated their support for Putin. Um, but they framed, but Tokayev, the Kazakh president, framed this as an internal issue. And so it essentially precluded any consideration right. by the CSTO. Um, and that's really interesting because back when Tokayev called on assistance from the CSTO, there was a lot of sort of uh, hand wringing that this was essentially selling Kazakhstan out to the Russians. That the next time the Russians needed backup, um, Kazakhstan would be obligated to come back with it. But I, I think uh, Tokayev knows that he doesn't have to send troops to support Russian because what is Putin going to do about it right now? Um, nothing.
0: Right. right. Uh, and so
1: I, 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 thought, I thought that was really interesting. Um, I think often when people who don't cover Central Asia a lot talk about Central Asia, they think of it as really like a blank chessboard in which these other players are playing on. But the Central Asian countries all have sort of, they do have autonomy. They do make their own decisions. Uh, they have constraints in those decisions. But I think it's pretty clear that they're interested in playing all all sides as best possible and getting what it is that they, they want, uh, certainly from the government's perspective. And so... I think I think if that rebellion had gone on longer, we might have mo- more to say about it. But it, it was it was a very interesting um, moment. I think there is probably concern in Central Asian capitals about Putin's longevity and what comes after and what that looks like, yeah. uh, because they've, they've all had a lot of support from Putin over the years, uh, also a lot of judgment, but <laughs> a lot of support. So um, who or what takes over could be worse for them. Uh, but we shall see.
0: Absolutely. No, I think I think that's a really, really interesting summary of a Central Asian perspective. Certainly not something that uh, I was aware of, so learned a lot uh, there. Uh, <laughs> Katie, thanks, as always, for sharing your insights on Central Asia. I'm sure we'll be back sooner rather than later to revisit the region. Uh, but always, always fun joining you.
1: Yeah, it is always a pleasure when you let me uh, ramble on about Central Asia, and I hope our our listeners learn something that they didn't know.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I think it's a region that often gets overlooked, and it's, you know, fun that we get to Visited as often as we do on on the podcast um but uh for listeners uh make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes i think we'll be back once again this month for an episode potentially looking at uh trilateralism in northeast asia between the u.s japan and south korea so stay tuned for that uh and if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review please do that uh, you can do that anywhere you get your podcast and we really do appreciate that uh, in the meantime uh, we'll be back soon with more thanks a lot for listening